0: My name is Mary and I am an alcoholic. And I'm grateful to be here and grateful to be sober. And by the grace of God, good fellowship, love and sponsorship and the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, it hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink since the tenth of August nineteen eighty four, and for that I am truly grateful. And uh, one more time, I will say to you that I am so grateful to be in the United States of America. I come here a lot. It is my opinion that without the United States of America, the whole world would not have Alcoholics Anonymous. It is because of the religious freedom that is allowed in the United States of America, that allowed for a God of your own understanding. (laughs) And I'm so grateful to be here in Kentucky. Um, I think I drove through Kentucky drunk a few times. <laughs> I was listening to the talk the other night about Mother to the other day about Mother Teresa, and I love Mother Teresa, and I always wanted to be Mother Teresa. <laughs> I ended up being a honky tonk angel.
1: <laughs>
0: I would like to thank Steve and the committee. Um, for inviting me here, Uh, it has been a wonderful convention. We've had such wonderful speakers, and being with Clancy and Sandy in the same weekend, that is just something so rare and and special. Uh, I owe Clancy my life because when I was nine years sober, I was going through a very difficult time. I was having to go back to Jamaica in sobriety. I had lost my sons, and their father had taken them from me, and they were living in Jamaica. And um, my sponsor in Toronto at the time, Rini, who died a couple of years ago with 52 years sobriety. Mm -hmm. um, She saw me and she knew I'd spent a lot of time in the mental institutions before coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, when you get back to Jamaica, uh, call Clancy. He uh," He was in mental institutions, like me. We both ended up on Skid Row. I can't think of anyone better to help you, she said. So I got to Montego Bay and I called Clancy. And he said, yes, write me a little bit about yourself and I will sponsor you for the two years you're in Jamaica. So I wrote him a letter and I explained all these things that were going on inside of me. And within seven days I got a call and it was Clancy. And he said, I thought it imminent that i call you. I got your letter and it has just, really shocked me and i thought oh my god he's not going to sponsor me either i'm (laughs) sorry if i'm horrible in clancy's eyes i'm like done (laughs) (laughs) so he said anyway the thing that i wanted to tell you is you really shouldn't drink So, for the two years I was there, I was flying up and down from Jamaica and met Clancy and, and saw him and write to him every week and um, call him and he, he, just, he just, he was one of those individuals that saved my life. Um, I also would like to thank Colleen. She has been the hostess with the mostess.
1: She has stuck
0: to me like Velcro. Aww. And, and being so kind and generous and I'm so grateful I think it was Michelle that made the lovely soap that was in the basket thank you Michelle, I thought it was a candy I almost ate it <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, yeah, Nellie who did the basket thank you, it was lovely so I'm here to tell you a little bit about what it used to be like what happened and what it's like now and um I was thinking about we have ceased fighting anything and anyone and that beggars the question when did I start fighting everyone? (laughs) When did that start? And you know, I'm I'm an Irish Scot English born in Scotland and that was always a great conflict in my life being an Irish Scot and then finding out English You see, being an Irish Scot, half of me wanted to drink all the time and the other half didn't want to pay for it (laughs) <laughs> and then through ancestry.com I found out about the English connection and I realized that was my Alanon side for trying to get the other two together and subdue them. <laughs> and, So I, I was, from I could think, you know, I truly believe what Dr. Silber says in the big book. He says, some of us are born that way, and I truly believe I was born that way. I don't know why I was born feeling so different. You see, from when I could think, all my life I felt different, all my life I felt less than, and all my life I felt as if I was on the outside looking in. I felt like a leprechaun in a Presbyterian church. You know? It's like I was looking for magic and there wasn't any, you know. I, and, and, and I just knew that, I just never felt right. And every my family knew I wasn't right, you know. I, I mean, I just always knew there was something wrong with me. And the reason I knew there was something wrong with me is because people were always saying to me, there's something seriously wrong with you. <laughs> and, you know, I... I I I was uh, blessed or cursed with this high IQ that lots of alcoholics have and from a very early age I was asking questions which nobody could give me the answers to I was born in a very strict Roman Catholic background, I wasn't allowed to question anything and I never shut up and um, I was very precocious and um, I remember I used to say to my family that I'm going out to play and they'd say see if you can get yourself adopted and make sure it's a Catholic (laughs) So there was no comfort to be found. I was sent to a Franciscan convent to be educated by the nuns. I did not do well in the convent. I did not take to that life very well. And at 15, because by this time... You see, okay, what had happened to me? If I was born with this thing that... You see, you take cocaine, you become a a, a cocaine addict. You take heroin, you become a heroin addict. Alcohol does not make you an alcoholic. Alcohol is a three-fold illness. The old timers used to call it a soul sickness. How did the soul sickness manifest in me? Well, I've just said about the feelings of difference and being not believing in things and, and looking for something different and never having a minute's shush. I wanted some shush from my brain from thinking about things from when I was young. And, and then I, because I felt so different, I developed defects of character. And those defects of character I developed were things I developed in order to make me feel better than you. Because I felt less than you. And I thought also you would never accept me for what I was. So I started to lie and to cheat and to steal at a very early age. And across great conflict in my family because they were such wonderful, good people. And by the time I was in the convent, I was at war. I was fighting everything and everyone. I was an introvert. I was angry and hostile. The nuns did not like my nature. And um, I don't know if you know about the old-time nuns with their habit. They used to have these big sleeves that had weapons in there. (laughs) And... I remember sitting at my desk one day during a Latin lesson, and I was doing something I shouldn't have been, because I was always doing something I shouldn't have been, and uh, the nun took out her weapon and wrapped me over the knuckles with a ruler. And I figured if she could give it, she could take it. (laughs) So I got thrown out of the convent when I was 15. I got expelled. And... um, Just before I was expelled, the mother superior took me to her um, office and said, If you sit down and memorise that sign on my wall, it may do something for your measly little life. And I looked at this sign and it said, Of courtesy it is much less than courage of heart or holiness, but in my walks to me it seems that the grace of God is in courtesy. And way back then, I wanted nothing to do with courtesy or the grace of God. But through coming through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, 25 years later, a broken, beaten, ruined individual. It was your great graciousness that gave me the courage, and it was the grace of God and with the courtesy you treated me that allowed me, a broken human being, to remain here. So it came true for me, and I'm so grateful. I used to go to Ireland every year, and when I went to Ireland for my holidays to see my family, everybody would look at me, and then they'd look at my mother, and they'd look at me, and then they'd say to my mother, she's not right, you know. (laughs) I figured, no, if you're not right in Ireland, you're not right anywhere. So what was I going to do? So I tried to fit in. I tried to fit in everywhere I went. I had lived in England when I was little. I never fitted anywhere. I did not know I needed a drink. You see, I did not know that the entire problem of my life was I had a soul sickness. And at some stage, at very young, I had made a conscious decision to separate myself from God. When Carl Gustav Jung, who is mentioned in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote back to our co-founder, Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson had written to Carl Young in 1960 and said, thank you, it's because you gave us this, this idea that we were beyond human aid. And you told Roland Hazard that he was hopeless without some kind of a spiritual living. It's because of that message you gave us why we have what we have in Alcoholics Anonymous and Cal Young wrote back and said thank you, he said you know it is my opinion that what the alcoholic suffers from, he has a thirst for a union with God and he quoted the biblical text as the heart panteth after thee O Lord and he quoted a Latin phrase to Bill Wilson and we have it in our literature and it was spiritus contra spiritum which in Latin means spirit against spirit you see it was Carl Jung's opinion that the alcoholic had a thirst for God and he drank the spirit but it was the wrong spirit he needed to get a spiritual way of life through the 10, 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous I did not know that I saw my grandfather who was a weekend alcoholic and he was a wonderful man he taught me to read when I was three I adored him But every Friday and Saturday night he'd come staggering down the street from east to west the way the drunk walks (laughs) singing Irish rebel songs in Glasgow, Scotland which is not wise (laughs) and uh, he would come in there and the next morning I would see him and he'd be sitting with his head in his hands and I would say to him what are you thinking about? He'd say, I'm pondering the immensities. And I was to ponder the immensities until I almost disappeared into my navel, thinking about
1: things.
0: (laughs) I did not know the magic word was action. I went into nursing. I got bored with nursing. I left nursing. I was always bored. That's the thing about having a high IQ. You never achieve anything. You just are permanently bored. (laughs) And um, after uh, nursing, I went down to London, England, and eventually I joined BOAC, which is now British Airways. And having on that British Airways BOAC uniform, it gave me the first sense of identity that I had ever had. I was a massive, by this time I was having palpitations, panic attacks, I did not want to drink, I was afraid to drink, I was a toad, I was CIA, Catholic Irish alcoholic, and I did not want to drink. I needed a drink, I did not want to drink, so what did I do? I tried every place in the world to fit and change and belong and try and fit in and become a part of and get some ease and comfort inside. With that British Airways uniform I felt like I had belonged and I belonged somewhere for once in my life. And my job was fabulous, I was an overseas escort which means that I did not serve meals on the plane. I would fly out to Hong Kong or Africa, and if there was someone sick, I would bring them back. I would fly out as a passenger, or else when we used to have these lollipop specials with all the school children going back to Africa and India and wherever, I would go back with them on the flight and come back as a passenger. It was a very, very good job. The only thing is, I don't like people. (laughs) I'm not comfortable with people I don't know how to make I'm socially inept to be honest I don't know how to talk to them I don't like being near them and I'm shut up in a plane for all this time it was not a good situation so I sat down as I was to say to myself many many times because you see in the big book it says self manifested in various forms is the root of our problem Says we got to get rid of self or it kills us. How do we get rid of self? What is self? Well, this is just my opinion. At that time, my self was whatever I had created myself to be without God. It was a godless self. So I said to myself, Self, if you get married, you'll be well. So I went around looking for someone to marry and I found a nice I found a really nice man I found a cultured well mannered lovely man I found a very nice man and I married that man and he married a figment of my imagination (laughs) and he took me to live in Kingston, Jamaica he came from an old Brom family in Kingston and I had everything that I could want Financially, and I had my BMW I had helpers I had people in the garden we had five homes on the island it was wonderful I had everything that should have made me happy and after a year my first son was born and I loved that child with every fiber of my being and just after he was born I thought I'm going insane 25 years of walking the earth and sucking it up and trying to belong and feeling so inept and feeling so less than and feeling like I'm nothing and now this time in my life when I should have everything I want, I want to, I'm going to go insane and they were going my, ex, my husband was going to bring the doctor and some friends were there and they said give her Valium I said I don't want Valium I didn't take any medication and someone said give her a drink I don't want a drink, give her a drink. Jamaica has 151 proof rum. <laughs> it is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I drank that 151 proof rum, and it went deep down inside of me like a piece of velvet. And it wrapped itself around every piece of raw nerve ending I had been walking around with for 25 years. And for the first time in my life, my skin fit. For the first time in my life, I had what Dr. Silkworth talks about in the big book. He said men and women drink because they like the sense of ease and comfort that they get. For some of them, it's the only normal living they'll ever have. I had some normal living. And for the first time in my life, I knew I had found the solution to my problem. I immediately drank on a daily basis, immediately, and I developed an amazing capacity for alcohol. And I drank like that for three, four years. I don't know when the cucumber became a pickle, but I know that after my second son was born, after four years, my behavior became utterly and completely unruly i go to a country club in Jamaica where once upon a time people used to greet me and say, Mary, we're having a party. Do come. Now they say, Mary, we're having a party. Please don't come. Because I did not know what my behavior would be. My husband developed that tick that men married to alcoholic women of my type develop. And it goes like this. (laughs) because what used to happen is we would go to parties and he would be dancing with somebody and I'd be drunk and I'd get jealous and I'd go up and challenge her on the dance floor to a (laughs) duel, and he'd run me off the floor and he'd take me home and he'd sit down and lecture me that I wasn't behaving like a lady and I'd say to him anyway you drop asleep tonight I'll kill you so he'd be sitting going <laughs> usually i'd pass out and he'd run and lock himself in the room um, one night i did catch him and i hit him over the head with a piece of mahogany and he had no sense of humor about that <laughs> absolutely not And he called my mother and he said, there's something seriously wrong with your (laughs) daughter. And my mother said, there was always something wrong with (laughs) your daughter. I used to live across the road from Bob Marley on Hope Road in Kingston. And um, Bob Marley had been given this big great old great house by his record producer, and it was in this beautiful part of Kingston. The Prime Minister's residence was three doors up. I used to wonder about the visiting dignitaries and all the ganja smoke that used to be wafting up there. And I used to look into Bob's garden, and I'd see him and all these Rastafarians running around, kicking a ball with their bare feet. And I did not think then about Bob's great humanitarian side, how he used to feed 4,000 people and look after them and care for the poor to me I was arrogant I was a narcissist and I saw nothing good he did, Bob Marley did not like me because he knew I was a drunk and these Rastafarians don't like alcohol I didn't like Bob because I thought he was a pothead <laughs> <laughs> and that he was bringing down the neighbourhood I used to see him in Mullen's garage he had a BMW, a red BMW and I had a navy blue BMW and one morning I saw him and he said to me hey you I was standing outside trying not to fall down and look composed he says you're a narcissist and a hedonist And you don't care about anything but yourself. I said, really? He said, people who drink are stupid. It destroys the brain and the soul. He said, tell me something, since you're so smart. What does BMW stand for? I said, Bavarian Motor Works. He says, no, man. It means Bob Marley and the (laughs) Whalers. Really.
1: <laughs>
0: Another time, uh, my in-laws came to me because, no, Kingston, Jamaica is—I mean, it's you know—it's a big enough city, but um, everybody in, in the society I came from, they all talk about each other's business. That's all they do all day long. And um, my in-laws came to me and said I was the talk of Kingston, and um, it was not good and. Something was wrong with me. They didn't know how much I drank. I was—I had attacked a dry cleaner who did not do my clothes properly, and that uh, did not sit well. And um, she said, "You know, we, you don't go to church. You don't believe in God. We don't know what to do with you." So my helper took me to a charismatic jumping for Jesus meeting in downtown Kingston. <laughs> Gloria was. I Gloria was lo- I love Gloria so much, and she was so kind to me and prayed for me. And anyway, she took me to this meeting downtown. I was the only white person down there. I like to think I was jumping higher than everybody, you know. And <laughs> I had been wrong. <laughs> I like to think I left them a few new moves, you know. But it did nothing for me. And then they said to me, Go and Leo, why don't you go and listen to the Rastafarians? They're very spiritual people. Some of my friends said, you know, Rastafarians are spiritual. They read from the Old Testament, they believe in God. I went there and they said, Mary, come try a little sense, of me, you man. Try a little ganja. Look how the liquor is making your eyes red. I said, I don't want nothing that's going to screw up my brain. Thank you very much. <laughs> nothing worked. And in the end I decided I was going to leave the island and um, I divorced my husband. He did not want me to take the children away, I should not have been allowed to, I was a chronic alcoholic. But I said I have the goods on him and if he doesn't let me go then um, I will print these things in the newspaper. I took my two little boys, they were nine and four, on a journey with alcoholism. I went to Scotland. My family told me about my drinking. A man I knew called me and asked me if I'd marry him. I love that option, <laughs> he said. I mean, I, I've been married with alarm and regular. I, I love getting married. You know, I just think it's really nice when you meet each other and you get that ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling, you know. And, but after six months, it's gone, and you're off looking for another ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. And I, <laughs> But anyway, he said, let's get married and I'll take you to Canada. And I thought, what a great idea, Canada. Drink Canada dry, here I come. (laughs) He took me to Alberta, it was minus 40 when I landed. I knew I'd have to drink a lot of rum to get warm in that place. And um Also, I was shaking now. I was shaking so much I could not get my drink up in the morning. And I realised I had a serious Valium deficiency. And uh, I got a job as a pharmaceutical rep. And um, a blackout drinker. And I won't go into all the things that happened. By the grace of God, I never killed anybody on the road. That man I married, I sent him away after a few months, and it was just my two little boys. My sons suffered from the illness of alcoholism, and they never touched a drop. It took a long time for that particular promise to come true for me too. The one that said, we will not regret the past nor wish to close the door on it. I think about my little wives and what they went through with a mother as a hopeless alcoholic. Not that I ever physically abused them because I did not. But you see, I am an alcoholic woman. And when the drink takes me I don't know where I'll end up. You see, I am one of those who had lost the power of choice. I no longer had choice. I'm always amazed at people who came in and said, I choose not to drink today. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you here? (laughs) If you can choose not to drink today. And um, my boys would wake up in the morning. Sometimes I'd bring men home when I shouldn't have. But I had no judgement left, you see. And my little boys must have woke up through the night and saw this stranger. And the next day they'd say to me, who was that man who was here, Mom?" I'd say, you were dreaming. There was no one here. You were dreaming. I made them question their reality. And then they'd come home at night and I'd be lying drunk on the ground. And it was so sad. And in the end, I developed this hopeless condition of mind and body. My family in Scotland came, put me in detox. And in detox in Calgary, it was just me and five Native Canadians. And I had DTs. And then when I began to get well and I was shaking too much, they would hold my soup and my coffee to me because I could not hold it for myself. I never heard about Alcoholics Anonymous But what these natives told me was that they drank because their spirit was broken. And I realized at some level, my spirit was broken. I got out of there and I decided to go back to Jamaica. My family went back to Scotland. You know these great decisions. You see, in the big book it says, the idea that someday, somehow, he will enjoy and control his drinking is the great obsession of every alcoholic of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Some of us pursue it into the gates of insanity and death. That was to be my story. I pursued it into the gates of insanity and death. The night before I was going back to Jamaica, I wanted to make a good entrance. (laughs) When I left Jamaica, I was 106 pounds bronze, long black hair, a lean, mean bronze machine. (laughs) Now I'm going back and I'm swollen, my hair is matted, Uh, my face is swollen, because I don't eat but I drink and I swell up. I was not looking good. And I thought, you know, I'm going to dye my hair black again and give myself a perm. (laughs) All on the same night. (laughs) Two drunken trips to the pharmacy. I passed out and in the morning I was, <laughs> I was not looking good. I went back to Jamaica and the children's father asked if he could have them for a week and they were gone for 13 years. Instead of saying to myself, self, You've been selfish, self-centered, self-will-run riot. You've been self-absorbed. You've cared about yourself and not thought about these little boys. Their father is married again. He has another child. He has a beautiful home. Let your little boys be there, if that is love. But no, that was not my kind of love. So I went to the police station in Kingston, Jamaica. I took my custody order. I got two jeeps full of policemen, and I went up to this big old great house where they lived. And my boys were behind these big grills that surrounded this entire house. And I shouted to them, bring the key, and my eldest son said, mommy, I wrote to daddy and told him that you were drinking all the time and I don't want to be with you anymore. It was my decision. And my little boy said, it's just for a week, mommy. And then the gardener came and threw me down the stairs, and the police pulled out the guns, and I knew I would have to leave. And I went back to this old rundown house I had rented in Kingston. And I drank two bottles of rum and a couple of bottles of Valium. And um, you know, it's enough to kill a horse, but alcoholics don't die easy.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, if someone says to you, if I drink, I'll be dead. Say, you wish. (laughs) You wish. I had been feeling whatever I had been feeling, that there might have been hope that one day I could be back to what I used to be. I now knew it was gone. I had the moment of clarity that is not the good moment of clarity. It is the moment of clarity that my life is over. And I wanted to scream out and say, what about me? What about me? How can you take these children from me? I don't know what's wrong with me. Help me. Is there nobody can help me? The only answer was no. Oblivion. I remember sliding down the wall before I went completely passed out and thinking, sweet, sweet oblivion, no more pain. They found me. Someone found me. They pumped out my stomach, and the next day it was Christmas '79. A psychiatrist came to me and told me something that was intellectually correct, very observant, and most definitely relevant to my condition. The psychiatrist said to me, "You mustn't do that anymore." <laughs> when I got over there, I ran wild for a little while in Kingston. Um. I hung out with tourists. If there's anyone here who was a tourist in Jamaica in 1980 and lost their wallet, I'd like to make amends. (laughs) (laughs) You see, what I would do then is I would find someone who drank like me. I did not want to find normal people. I wanted someone who drank like me. Because if you're normal and you drink with me, you know I'm a lush. But if you're an alcoholic of my type, then when we drink together, after a drink or two, things become visible again. Things become possible. One day I'll get that wife back. One day I'll get that big house back. One day I'll get this back or that back. That wife I left in Milwaukee. That life wife I left in California. That life I had. One day. And what happens is after a few drinks, him and I begin to look real good to each other. And we wander off into the enchanted cottage. The only thing is, the sun comes up. The pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization of being with someone one more time. And on one such morning, I was walking out of there with my escort of the night before, and a car passed by with my ex husband and his new wife and my two sons, as if pre arranged. And the father came and said, if you don't leave the island, I'll kill you. And he gave me $3,000. He hadn't been paying child support all the years I'd been out of Jamaica. And I took myself to Miami. I knew no one to drink myself to death. It is not easy to drink yourself to death. You drink, you pass out, you come to. You drink, you pass out, you come to. You come back to the consciousness, which is unbearable, And that I have destroyed everything in my life. I have nothing left. I feel ashamed. I hate myself. The only solution is to get drunk one more time. I had a little apartment. People would come in and steal my furniture, my clothes. They'd take that which I had to give and that which I did not have to give. I ended up living at the bottom of Lincoln Road on Miami Beach. And the only thing I could get on my feet because they were so swollen was a size ten and a half flip-flop. And they were rubberized. And because of the heat and the swelling, eventually they had to be dug out of the soles of my feet. That is where alcohol took me. You know, the greatest hope I have was when I heard Bill Wilson's statement. He said Alcoholics Anonymous is not a success story. Rather, it is the chronicle of our colossal human failure turned to usefulness by the divine alchemy of a loving God. I was a colossal human failure. I could think of nothing less than me. The shame I had, the guilt, and this hopeless obsession with alcohol and this craving beyond all belief. I didn't know what to do. And um. I panhandled off an old woman who used to live in Kingston, an old English woman who now lived in Fort Lauderdale, and she called my family. Now here is one of these strange coincidences. You know, we say coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. I love that saying. There's been two coincidences I've found. Both odd to me. While I was living on the street, My family did not know what had happened to me. My father never drank, and he retired from sea um, in the Navy. And one night he was lying with my mother in bed, and he said, I don't know where my lassie is. I don't know where my grandchildren are. I'm going for a walk. And he went for a walk and dropped dead in the street at the same time I was living on the street. I found that out much later. The other strange coincidence is when I found out about this English branch of my family and went down there, my brother and I, they produced a picture of my father as a Franciscan monk. My father had been a Franciscan monk, which he never spoke about, and had left the monastery um, over... Well, maybe he got thrown out. Franciscan nuns threw me out. Maybe the Franciscan monks threw him out. I don't know. But he had an altercation with the church. And um, I thought the similarities there are are amazing. Uh, My family came again to Miami. It was a bench warrant out for my arrest. um, I got back to Canada. A man married me because he thought he, he felt sorry for me he'd known me for 25 years he thought he could get me well the first time he tried to kill me i tried to kill him he took me to a psychiatrist and the second time he took me to the mental institution and i love being in the mental institutions i love being in the mental institutions because i'm safe from the greatest enemy i have i love being in there i'm taken care of and i'm allowed to sleep 22 hours a day compliments of the Alberta government and the only excitement we ever have in the mental institutions are watching to see whether the other person can light the cigarette because we're so full of drugs (laughs) and the other one is when somebody drops their lighted cigarette button, their paper slippers and they're too zonked to do anything but watch it burn (laughs) And uh, after being in there a few times, um, one time i have been taken there by the police and the psychiatrist (coughs) said to me, I'm writing a letter to try and keep you out of court, out of prison. And he let me read this letter. And it said, chronic alcoholic, abnormal personality and depressive. And those are all true. And I went to court And they said I had suffered tragic social circumstances. And I was a tragic social circumstance till I came to you. One night I was drinking myself sober. I picked up the phone and I phone to AA. A man called Stan came, who had 29 years sobriety. He told me his story. And then he said, you tell me a little bit of your story. And he said to me something that nobody had ever said before. He said, I think you're one of us. And I said to him, Stan, I know I'm an alcoholic, but I'm also nuts. I have a psychiatric report that says I'm nuts. He said something that I repeat every time I talk because it made me laugh for the first time in many a day. He said, Mari, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is like 12 adjustable wrenches for any nut that comes through the door. (laughs) and those are words of wisdom I had one slip my dry day is the 10th of August 1984 on the 9th of August 1984 some people came and the took me to were meeting and I was in very bad shape they said I was shaking so much strangers were waving back at me <laughs> <laughs> and that night a little girl from uh, a little girl from AA had 12 years sobriety and she spent the night with me And the next day she said, I'm going to leave you now because you're a loser. And I only stick with winners and Alcoholics Anonymous. But before I go, I'm going to ask you to kneel down and say the third step prayer. I said to her, I kneel for nothing. And then something said, think of your children's eyes. And what I thought about and came into my mind's eye was the last time I had gone to Jamaica on another aborted trip due to alcohol, to see my sons. I had called and instilled hope in my little boys. I spoke to the father and said, I'm sober now. I was on medication. I want to come down and book a week in a hotel and have my boys for a week. He said, okay, if you can prove you're sober, I'll let you have that. And I got on the plane in Edmonton and flew to Toronto. And in Toronto, I bought a bottle of vodka. And by the time I reached Kingston, Jamaica when my little boys were standing with an adult at the airport to greet me, I dropped down drunk at their feet. And the person who had brought them said, not this time, come back again some other time and led my boys away. How do you heal that? How do you heal that in you? Far be it my little boys. This seems beyond measure. How can that kind of hurt ever go away? If I didn't have the solution, where would I be? Where would they be? This is a marvelous thing. You know, we alcoholics are there. You see, I don't believe in God. I know there's a God. I have knowledge there's a God. Because I am one of those who was utterly and completely beyond human aid. For 26 years plus, I have woken up every morning and said, Dear God, Heavenly Father, please keep me sober this day. Dear God, Heavenly Father, please keep me sane this day. Dear God, Heavenly Father, please walk with me this day and show me the way. I love thee, my God, and without thee I am truly nothing. May thy will not mine be done. Because I know I have knowledge of God. The miracle that he has wrought in this wonderful fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, for people who are beyond hope. You can go out in the world and say, to most people, do you have hope? They'll say yes. I was told when AA people used to come into the meetings in the mental institution, and I was full of drugs, they say to me, do you have hope? i say, I have no hope. I know not the word hope. So that is what I thought about when I was kneeling down to say this third step prayer. I was thinking about my son's eyes as they looked over the shoulder at me lying on the ground with the hopes dashed of being with their mommy for a week because of this horrible illness called alcoholism. So I knelt down and I held her hands and I repeated a third step prayer after her. Not knowing what I was doing, not knowing if it was worth, just both in the words. And from that moment to this, I have had no desire for a drink. None. Some unmerited gift of grace was given to me. William James, who wrote The Varieties of Religious Experience... He had been examining all these people who at that time in American history were called dipsomaniacs. And these dipsomaniacs, these street drunks, overnight had changed their lives. They had become runners of missions, sober people, doing good for the world. And he thought, what is it? What's happened to them? And he went and interviewed all these men. And the, the common denominator he found was that each and every one had reached a place of absolute and complete despair. And I think that that, I don't know when that despair was in me. I don't know when it is in anybody. But it is that despair that seems to be the opening for the spirit to enter into a place where there had been no spirit except alcohol spirit. I got very active in AA, I loved it. I had the sense of belonging, my God, to come in here and hear people talk about things. You know, and I was still not well, I did not get well for a long time, but I didn't drink. I used to go to a meeting, I shook for six months, and um, I used to go to a meeting and it was a, they had a, a beginner's role. it was called shaker's roll, and we used to all sit and shake. And you know, have that goofy look on our face, you know, full of this pink cloud. I remember sitting there one morning. We're all sitting, shaking, and feeling good, and uh, <laughs> trying to hold coffee. And uh, I, I saw the guy next to me, and he he looks up at the wall, and and I look up at the wall, and I, I see this thing. I don't know what it is, and it it was still summer And it was a, it looked like a big big insect I'd never seen before. But anyway, I didn't know if it was really there. <laughs> And I didn't trust his judgment. (laughs) You know, and in there, we're all sitting kind of looking at this. uh, There was an old timer called Ernie, and he said to me, Hey, it's really there. It's a (laughs) horse." I remember Ernie coming to me. When I came in, I was a bit... At first, I mean, I just loved being here, but, you know, I had taken myself out of society, and I, I... I, I didn't know how to mingle and I didn't think anybody had ever gone as far as I'd gone I didn't think anybody had been where I'd been and seen what I'd seen I thought they were all just toast burners you know that had drunk and Skid Row was their carpet and I was arrogant and uh, he said to me if you don't learn to take instruction because you are impulsive compulsive and repulsive <laughs> he said and if you don't learn to take instruction you will never get well and my, my language was not good. In fact, I sobered up in Alberta. They used to call me Alberto Crude. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a cover, that behavior. And he said to me, this here is the Cathedral of the Spirit. Where anywhere AAs come together is the Cathedral of the Spirit. Consider it your church, and you have to respect it. And when you go up on the podium, you dress up. And there is no bad language ever spoken in these rooms. And you have to treat this with respect, and this will treat you with respect. And the people started coming around me and started making me feel good. And they started to love me, and they loved me when I could not love myself. I had a wonderful sponsor. I did a fourth and a fifth when I was six weeks sober because I could not bear to live with my conscience. It was a conscience and a knowledge of the things I had done. And I did the fourth and fifth, and I got into my other steps. Bill Wilson was my higher power for a long time. I didn't know how to get, I didn't know what had happened to me when I had said that prayer. I thought it was the power of you that had come together and healed me in some way. I didn't know. And the old time I said, you gotta find a God because this book is about finding God. And I uh, ran around looking for God. And I was going to a lot of meetings, and um, one day I heard this um, old-timer. She was from the Northwest Territories, and she was the most spiritual woman I had ever heard. And she was saying things like, as a drunken woman, I never went to bed with an ugly man, but I sure woke up with a few. (laughs) (laughs) She said, but I don't do it anymore because I am a lady in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went up to her afterwards, and I said, who is this God you have? I'm looking for a God. She said, Mary, my God's called Harold. I said, Harold? She said, do you know that prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. <laughs> she was pulling my leg. Um, when I was about ten months sober, I got a call to say that my eldest son was going, coming from Jamaica, to Toronto to go to school for a year and I called spoke to my sponsor because we usually say no no movement for a year and she said okay call intergroup in Toronto and have them meet, ask a couple of alcoholics to meet your plane, check into the Y until you can find an apartment and a job get a sponsor immediately another one, so I did all of that I called intergroup in Toronto two alcoholics met my flight, took me to the YWCA, introduced me to meetings. I got a job, I got an apartment, saw my son for a year, became transparent to my son. And um, after he went back, I <laughs> the old time was just to say to me, no relationships for a year, but for you it's two. <laughs> because you have a propensity for getting married. <laughs> and one Sunday morning, I was two years sober, was looking good <clears throat> my son had gone back to Jamaica I went to a meeting on a Sunday morning and I looked down the table and I saw him <laughs> and I just knew God had sent me my reward
1: <laughs>
0: you know in the 12 and 12 it says when boy meets girl on AA campus I love that how nice is that <laughs> Underneath it said they should both examine themselves to make sure there is no deep psychological disorder that is preventing. <laughs> I don't like that part.
1: <laughs>
0: so here's what happens when you fall in room love in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I was a great AA. I was going to lots of meetings. I had a sponsor. I was very active in AA, but I was still not well here. Um, I was not well before I came, so I'm not well for a long time after. And um, <clears throat> Here's what happens when you're not well enough to have a relationship. You still go to a lot of meetings, and you both have on your peacock feathers, and you strut your stuff. And someone used to ask me to read how it works, and my eyes would flit across a crowded room, and I could see John and I wandering off into the sunset under the circle and the triangle. (laughs) with Bill and Bob in heaven saying bless you my child it was so beautiful and I shared this vision with my sponsor she said you're an emotional retard <laughs> I knew she was jealous. <laughs> so she didn't approve of the marriage. So John and I eloped. Here's what happens in the close proximity of marriage where you haven't had personality change promised by the 12 steps. In the 12 steps, Appendix 2 of the Big Book. 12 Steps talks about this transformation of personality. In the close intimacy of marriage, one by one the peacock feathers start dropping off. (laughs) And in the end all you have is the same two old turkeys sitting (laughs) still. And I had to leave that marriage and go back to the Y and get active. And then I got another apartment. Then I got the call to go back to Jamaica I told you about. And uh, I went back to Jamaica, and my sons were living with a grandmother. They'd been kicked out of their father's home. I went and lived with my old ex mother in law, and I got my sons off to Florida College and one back to Scotland. I worked with the poor people in Before I went back to Jamaica, my sponsor said to me, go back to Jamaica and make amends to the island. (laughs) (laughs) And you see, I really had to do that because I'll tell you, just before I left Jamaica the last time, when I was a hopeless alcoholic, there had been a bunch of cricketers came down uh, to play a cricket match. And one of them was a sir. He'd been knighted. I won't mention his name, I'll just call him Sir Cricketer. (laughs) and he had met me and I must have been in a particularly lucid phase. and uh, he asked me to accompany him to this party up in the hills that was being given for the the cricketers I said I'd love to come so he took me and uh, when we walk into this big party there's a hostess standing at the door and Sir Cricketer said thank you for having this and you said I could bring someone I brought Mary, I don't know if you know Mary he said, Nor, she's more famous than you, man. <laughs> so I had to go back and make amends to the island. And I worked with poor people, and I got active in AA. And then I came back, and that husband I had married in AA, I found him one day, he had a stroke. And he'd been lying on the ground for two nights and three days. And when I found him, he was turning purple. And... Um, I'd gone to check on him because I hadn't been able to get him on the phone. And I said to God, if he lives, I'll look after him. Because I'd never looked after anybody in my life. And John was in hospital for 18 months. He could never speak again, and he couldn't understand the spoken word. And he had paralysis. And I took him home. And I had him with me for five, six years. And he died in October 2001. And just before he died, I read him how it works and then I held his body till he grew cold and for the first time in my life I finished something of worth for another human being and that is by the grace of God and the spiritual life that we are given my children came back to live with me for a while until they drove me absolutely and completely insane (laughs) I sent them off to be self-supporting through their own contributions They love me very much and uh, when my eldest son got married, his father came up from Jamaica and I flew out, he got married on Vancouver Island and my ex-husband and I walked my son down the aisle. And Now he's given me three little grandchildren, Nina, Bella and Gia and they call me and tell me how much they love me and they tell me they love me more than fresh vegetables. And I fly out there every year and look after them. And uh, my other son, Mark, my son, Mark, my youngest boy, he got married in a Ukrainian church in a (laughs) kilt. My boy, Mark, and he danced with me to a tune called Mama. Now, the healing has taken place to a large extent. My mother and father were both dead before I got to AA. How do I make amends? I look after older people, go to 80-year-olds, is take them out, take them for the day when I'm not travelling to conferences. I do stuff that I would love to do for my parents. That's how I make amends to them. I go to Scotland every year and see my family and my aunts and look after them. And I uh, see my both my sons, I do that. And uh, A couple of years ago, my son Mark was transferred to Aruba for five years. And he took my two little grandchildren, Maya, who at that time was seven. I had looked after Maya for two years. And um, a lot of healing there. But anyway, he sent me this first class ticket to come down to Aruba to see his new house down there. And we had a lovely two weeks together. Now, this is how it is with our children whose life had been disrupted. I have spoken to my son, Mark, 20 odd years nonstop about what do you want to ask me about the alcoholism and how it affected you. I don't want to talk about it, mom, it's done. I'm so proud of you. One night, just before I was going back from Aruba, I'm sitting with my back, uh, he's sitting with his back to me, having dinner. Maya and Aidan were out playing and I said to my son, don't you think it's time to bring the children in? It's getting dark outside." And without turning around, he said to me, "'So where was I when I was seven, Mom?' You see? He's never, ever spoken about it. But into his mind, he's saying, "'When I was seven, you were drunk all the time? How can you ask me about my children? I look after them.' And I realized it will take a lifetime," as Bill Wilson said. I sponsor a lot of women who drive me utterly and completely insane. <laughs> and uh, a lot of them are very, very good, and a lot of them are very, very bad. And uh, there's one in particular, I uh, fired twice and rehired. <laughs> and, um, you know, she comes and sits and whines in front of me. And I, you see, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you can do what you like, but you got to think, you've got to act right. I can think anything I like, but I've got to act right. And I just sit and look at them and listen and give them my love. I have a wonderful sponsor today called Norma. I need my sponsor more today than I've ever needed her because I'm more conscious. I'm more conscious of the things that can go wrong. And I'll finish with sharing this with you. I'm a lot weller than I used to be. I I live a life today of which some days I say, hey, you did okay, Mary. I have a life of meaning and purpose coming from utter and complete chaos. And I love my life. But what happens is this alcoholism never goes away. And the other day I came across a defective of character of mine that hadn't surfaced for a long time. And it was based on envy. Envy of my daughter-in-law and her mother's relationship and my son's relationship with her are rubbish. But it was envy. Why can't I do that? Why can't I have that? I'm comparing myself to parents who never drank. And what happened with that is for three days I'd wake up in the morning and be thinking, before even I was fully awake, of how my grandchildren might love the other granny more than me. And rubbish. And it became an obsession of the mind. And I thought, what the hell is this? And I examined it, I wrote it down, I called my sponsor. She said, You're having an obsession of the mind. phoned the back. I said, I have this sense of impending doom over this. She said, impending doom? Is that the doom that's impending? <laughs> I couldn't believe this at my stage of sobriety. Anyway, this is what I found. I found that behind every obsession of the mind lies a truth. And it was the truth that I didn't want to look at. And what was the truth? The truth was this simple. It was that maybe my grandchild does love her other granny more than me. And we all come to be, it is so irrelevant. I have been given a life that I did not deserve. I don't want what I deserve, thank you very much. I'm very grateful for what I have. But it was an amazing thing to go through that. So, my gratitude... For Alcoholics Anonymous, knows no bounds. Alcoholics Anonymous is my my love. The great God of my understanding that I found here, I thank you. I thank you for welcoming me. I thank you for Steve, the committee, and all the great graciousness, Colleen, everything I've had here, and for being a part of this wonderful weekend. Thank you.